the children of Israel. They had seen God's hand in so many ways. They had seen the power of God as he parted the Red Sea. They had seen the miracles of manna in the wilderness. They had seen water come from a rock in the middle of nowhere. They had seen bitter waters turn sweet. They had been protected from enemies. They had been shielded from the extreme desert heat. They had been warmed on the cold desert nights. And through all these wilderness, they had a faithful leader in Moses and Aaron. They had seen what happened when Miriam spoke out against Moses and Aaron, and she was turned into a leper. And it was only after her repentance and Moses pleading on her behalf that God healed her and she was able to come back to camp. And then they had the experience at Mount Sinai. God himself speaking to them from the top of the mountain. God giving them a visual picture of the plan of salvation in the sanctuary in the wilderness. And all of the writings that God gave to Moses, the laws of health, the laws of protection, laws of civil, civil government, an orderly camp. And then the children of Israel reached the borders of the promised land, Canaan. And of course, we know the story. They decided to send in spies into the land of Canaan to give a good report of the land. Tell us like what grows there, what the people are like, what, uh, what kind of gardens we can grow there, how it will sustain life. Is it really the land flowing with milk and honey that God told us when we were in Egypt? And so those 12 spies went into Canaan. They searched out the land for 40 days and they came back with the biggest fruit that they had ever seen. The most beautiful abundance of the land. But yet, there was a negative report. Yes, two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, had given an amazing report and said, you know, God has given us this land. It truly is flowing with milk and honey. Let us go and possess it. But the other 10, no, they're giants. There's no way that we can, I mean, you should see their walled cities, their fortresses. The, I mean, the people are so tall that we look like grasshoppers. They're, There's just no way. I mean, all we are is a band of untrained slaves. There's no way that we could go against their armies. You should see their chariots and their horses and, and watch them prepare for war. There's absolutely no way that we can go out against them. And then Caleb and Joshua came up again and said, Don't rebel against the Lord. Don't be afraid of the people of the land. For they are bred for us, and their defense is departed from them because the Lord is with us. Don't fear them. 
But instead of listening to the voice of encouragement of Caleb and Joshua, all of Israel turned to stone them. To do away with the two men who had the faith and the courage to possess the land that God had promised them. And so as a result, Israel was given what they asked for. They said as they were trying to stone Caleb and Joshua and they were in such distraught condition, they said, would that God that we had died in the wilderness rather than to face these giants in the land. And God said, okay, I have heard what you asked for. You said you don't want to go into Canaan. You wished you'd die in the wilderness rather than face these giants. Then I will give you what you ask for. You can die in the wilderness. And you can wander in the wilderness for the next 40 years. Well, suddenly at the proclamation of their doom that they would die in the wilderness, Israel was a little upset. And they said, no, God, you're you're wrong on this. We will possess that Canaan. We're going to show you, God, that we can do it. And so they rallied up an army, a very disorganized army, more like a mob armed with sticks and a few uh, uh, garden tools and a few uh, knives. And they marched into Canaan. They said, we'll just take one of the smallest cities on the border. We can easily do it. Well, the Canaanites, seeing the army of Israel marching in and having heard all the reports of how God had destroyed the king of Egypt and his entire army and how God had protected them through the wilderness wanderings, they were scared. And they said, we're going to die. We must fight the Israelites like we've never fought before. And so they did. They brought their biggest armed forces and totally destroyed the mob of Israel who were in disobedience to God's command to go in. And so Israel went back to their tents to stew. And that's where our story begins in Numbers chapter 16. I'd like you to turn there with me. Numbers chapter 16. As Israel begins to stew, to complain, to murmur, it became very easy to think, you know, maybe Moses and Aaron really aren't led by God. Maybe this is all made up. And as the general feeling of Israel was very upset, of course, they did not want to admit that they were going to have to die in the wilderness. A man by the name of Korah rises to the occasion. Now, Korah had a very important place. He was a very important man. Korah was a cousin of Moses. And as a cousin, you know, you can imagine a family dispute going on, right? Uh, what, what, makes you, what makes my cousin think that he's over me? And Korah thinks, well, what makes my cousin Moses think that he's the leader? What makes my cousin Aaron think that he's the only priest? Now, who exactly was Korah? 
If we read in verse 1, we find that Korah was the son of Kohath. Who is the son of Levi? Korah was a direct descendant of Levi. He was of the same tribe as Aaron. And if you look later at, if you do a little research into who the Kohathites were, uh, the Kohathites had a very prominent place in the sanctuary. Uh, we find them in Chronicles where the Kohathites and the, yeah, the Kohathites were in charge of making sure that the utensils and instruments in the sanctuary were kept clean. If you look a little further, uh, in fact, if you turn to Psalm chapter 42, hold your finger at number 16 because we will be going back there. But if you look at Psalm chapter 42, the introduction at the beginning of the chapter before verse 1, what does it say here? It says, To the chief musician, a contemplation or a song for the sons of Korah. The Korahites were the choir directors. They were the singers in the choir. They had a prominent place in the worship service. Now tell me who that reminds you of. Maybe don't say it, but think of that. Who else was a choir director that we know of in the prominent place in the worship of God? So Korah, he's disgruntled because his cousin is higher than him. And after all, how do you know for sure that Moses really was instigated by God? I mean, did Moses just decide that he was going to be a leader? Well, it just so happened that as these rumblings of discontent were seething in Korah's heart, he had two friends. Their names were Dathan and Abiram. And if you look at a map of the sanctuary, the Levites, of course, all the tribes were situated around the sanctuary in a, in a square uh, as far as where they were camped around this sanctuary. And the Levites and the Reubenites, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Levi, bordered each other. And it just so happened that Korah's tent in the tribe of Levi was right on the edge of Reuben's tents. And Dathan and Abiram were leaders in the tribe of Reuben. Now, who was Reuben if we look at Jacob's sons? Reuben was the eldest son of Jacob. And naturally, the eldest son, actually, uh, traditionally through the prophets, if you look uh, through the book of Genesis, the eldest son was the priest of every family and also was the civil leader of the family. Well, Dathan and Abiram, they were kind of kind. They said, well, Korah, since you're already in the sanctuary, why don't you take the priesthood and we'll take the civil authority? And maybe between the three of us, we can be better leaders than Moses and Aaron. And so they began to plan. And at first it was just the three of them. They were good friends and they would have little committee meetings in their tent talking about all the things they didn't like about Moses and Aaron and the way they were running the Israelite government. It's coming up with their own plans of how, if they were in power, they could do better. And 
After a while, it wasn't just the three of them anymore. Because we find that uh, in verse 2, there were 250 leaders of the congregation who joined forces with them. Up until now, Israel, whenever they had a revolt against Moses and Aaron, it was kind of like a mob. You know, like a bunch of them would get together and say, let's overthrow Moses and Aaron, and they would just come charging up. But this was the first time in the history of Israel since they left Egypt that this was an organized revolt. In fact, this or this revolt became so organized and united Israel so much that it was the most united Israel ever had been since they left Egypt. These uh, 250 leaders of the congregation, princes, they were called, they were part of that system of government that was organized when uh, Jephthro noticed that Moses was taking too much on himself. And he said, divide the congregation into sections and have rulers over each section. And so that way they could take care of the smaller matters and the greater matters and only the biggest matters would go to Moses. That's who these men were. These princes, they were leaders instigated, instituted by God, authorized by Moses to be leaders in the congregation. And here they are, along with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, planning a revolt against Moses. You know, it's interesting. We are told that even though at first it started as just a little bit of discontent, a little bit of disrespect against the leaders that God had given them, as time went on, as Korah, Dathan, and Byron began sharing this with more and more people, and first of all, the princes, and then from there to like the populace of Israel, they began to believe in their heart that what they were saying was true. They began to say things like this. Let's look over the history of Israel. Let's see. I mean, if we just look back at our wanderings in the desert and we see all the times where God sent plagues and he sent snakes and he sent all these things to to uh, come and punish us, you know, those things were instigated by Moses. And if Moses had simply changed the way he was leading us, if he had focused on our good things instead of always focusing on our sins and always reproving our sins, if we had focused on the good points and encouraged us, because, I mean, God said we're a holy people, if he had done this, then we wouldn't have had those plagues. We wouldn't have fallen. In fact, we'd be in the land of Canaan right now if it weren't for the way Moses was leading us. They said it so much that eventually it got to the point where they were saying, God himself spoke to me and told me that I am to replace Moses because Moses has failed. And if we don't do it immediately, the whole nation of Israel is going to go into catastrophe. And God told me this himself. Well, God hadn't told them. But if you say something long enough, you believe it's true. And so all of Israel began to side with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and the 150 princes. So they came 
verse 3, and they finally said, okay, we have enough people on our side. We're going to go to Moses and Aaron and tell them what we're going to do. So they came to Moses and Aaron, and they said, they began accusing them. You take too much on yourselves. You carry too much of the weight. Don't you realize that God has said our whole congregation is holy? Now, this accusation couldn't be further from the truth. Moses wasn't solving everything himself. That's why there were 250 princes. And of course, there were more than that. Uh, It was only 250 of the princes who revolted. But you know, one of the most interesting things I found about this story is that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and some of those 250 princes were actually with Moses on the mountain when he beheld God's glory. How can you behold God's glory like that and see how God is leading and yet rebel? Well, maybe, do we do that too? Have we ever rebelled against God? So Moses, he didn't know what to say. He fell on his face and began pleading with God. God, forgive these people and please show me what to do. And God gave him an answer. And so he came up with a plan. He says in verse 5, Tomorrow morning God will show us who is his and who he wants to be leaders. Show up tomorrow morning with censers full of incense. And line up in front of the sanctuary and burn incense to God. And we will see who is his. Now, Israel knew very well what happened to Nadab and Abihu when they burned incense of their own strange fire before God. They were killed immediately in the sanctuary by fire from heaven. But this is a step further. This is not only strange incense, but this is people who are not Levites, people who are not called to be priests, offering incense before God. It was an outright rebellious act to even do it. But notice the word, tomorrow morning. Moses didn't say, go home, make yourself some censors and meet me back here at 5 p.m. He said tomorrow. And there was a reason. Because God was giving them an opportunity to repent. He says, I want you to think about it all night. The step that you are going to take tomorrow. But yet, they didn't repent. Instead, on the next morning, not only did all 250 princes come with their censers and Korah himself, but they went to the whole congregation of Israel and said, we want you to come. Because on this day, we are going to overthrow Moses and Aaron and we will take over rulership and we want you all to be there to witness it. You know, it'd be easy for us to say, well, maybe Moses and Aaron called the whole congregation to make a spectacle of them, but it wasn't. It was Korah himself who called the congregation to be a witness. And so the 250 princes stood there with their censers in front of the sanctuary burning strange incense incense to God in direct disobedience to God's command. And Korah 
slipped away back to the tents of his friends, Dathan and Byram, because they didn't want to be priests. They just wanted to be the civil leaders, and he wanted to be with them. Moses saw that Korah had slipped away, and he noticed that Dathan and Byram were not there. And so he took 70 elders with him and went over to talk to Korah. And he says, repent, repent. Do you understand what you're doing? Once again, he was calling to their hearts. There's still time to repent. There is still time to make a decision for God, to recognize the authority that God has given before it's too late. But instead of repenting, Korah, Dathan, and Byram stood there in total defiance against God. And so Moses made a pronouncement in verse 28. By this shall you know that God has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. If these men die naturally like all men, or they are visited by the common fate of all men, then God has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected God. And as soon as he finished those words, the earth opened her mouth and swallowed Korah, Dathan, Abiram, their tents, and all their possessions and families into the earth, closed up, and they were gone. Well, Israel was terrified. They fled and said, run, because the, the earth could open their mouth and swallow us up too. And they went back to their tents. But instead of repenting, instead of repenting like God was asking them to do, they stewed the entire night in their tents. They were mad. And the next morning, well, wait, there's one more thing that happened after the earth opened her mouth, right? In verse uh, 35, fire came down from heaven and consumed all 250 princes who were burning strange incense before God. So Israel stews all night in their tents. And the next morning, they came, in verse 40, they came to Moses and Aaron and said, you have killed the people of God. Now, did Moses kill them? No, Moses did not kill them. God directly did, and they were in direct disobedience. But Israel was not willing to admit they were wrong because if they admitted that Korah, Dathan, and Byram were wrong, then that means they were admitting that God was right and they would have to die in the wilderness and they could not take over the land of Canaan. Those words that Korah had shared with them were so encouraging, so smooth. You know, they, they, they told us we were holy people. They told us that, that under their leadership, we'd be able to go into the promised land and all this stuff. And now to admit that Korah, Dathan, and Byron were wrong is admitting that we are doomed to die. And God became very angry with the children of Israel. And he told Moses and Aaron, Go away, separate yourself from the children of Israel, and I will consume the entire congregation. Now, 
At this point, remember Moses had been a shepherd. I think he would much have preferred to stay a shepherd over what he had been through with the children of Israel and all those wanderings in the desert. Don't you think? I mean, he's ready to say, okay, God, let someone else be a leader. I'm done. Uh, I'm tired. Just, just, just find somebody else. But he didn't. He was willing to be the leader as long as God asked him to. Until God asked him to lay it down, and then he would lay it down happily. But at that moment, Moses was not about to lay it down. Instead, he fell on his face and pleaded with God. God, do not. Verse verse, um, 46. He prayed that God would not destroy Israel. And instead, he asked Aaron to take a censer and put fire from it the altar and go quickly into a congregation and to make an atonement for these rebellious people who wanted to overthrow Aaron. And as this was happening, Moses stayed in the sanctuary, pleading with God, please forgive these rebellious Israelites. Please place the sin on me instead of them. Please forgive them. And Aaron ran out in the middle of the congregation as a plague was going through the land and Israelites were dying left and right. And Aaron stood there in the middle with his censer, pleading with God between the living and the dead, pleading with God to forgive them and spare their lives. Verse 49, those who died in the plague were 14,000 before the plague was ceased. And God did one more thing. He made Aaron's rod to bud, which forever settled the question as to who really was the priest of God. And Israel was doomed to accept their fate of dying in the wilderness. But what about us today? Are we ever like Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? Are we tempted to murmur against God or against the servants that God has given I know as a child, I always thought about what happened at the dinner table at lunch on Sabbath afternoon. How many times is it tempting to pick apart the minister or what he said? I know I heard that as a child. And it's like, you know, how often are we doing the same thing? Or maybe it's not the minister of our church. Maybe it's Someone on 3UBN. Or maybe it's someone at the conference. Are we tempted to go against the instruments that God has given to us? Or maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it's our parents. Maybe it's grandparents. Have we ever been tempted to disrespect the voice of God? You know, the story of Korah reminds me very much of the story of Lucifer in heaven. Lucifer was the covering cherub. He was the leader of the angelic choir. And yet, he wanted to usurp God and his authority. And he still is trying to do that today. And because he can't, he tries to do it through us. He tries to infuse seeds of doubt 
seeds of doubt of God himself, seeds of discontent for where we are in life. He tries to get us to nitpick and fault find among ourselves, among our Christian brethren. But are we going to let him win? And most importantly, he tries to keep us from repenting. He tries to prevent us from seeing our own guilt and our own sin and how wicked we are personally in the sight of God. And he says, you're not so bad. I mean, look at those people down the street. Look at those terrible, wicked people who are in jail. Look at what they've done. You're not so bad. I mean, God says that you're a peculiar people. But what is he asking us to do? The devil wants us to think that we are good so that we don't see our lovely Jesus. Jesus died for us. Jesus calls to our hearts to repent. He says, don't wait until it's too late. Don't wait to come to Jesus. He wants you to come now. He's calling, repent. Repent and believe in me. Believe that I love you, that I've died on the cross for you, that I want to save you before it's too late. And you know, many of us, we may have already given our lives to Jesus. We may have already dedicated our lives to God. Korah had too. He was a leader in church. But yet, he still needed to repent. We are all sinners. And sometimes we can allow our sins to blight us from the face of Jesus. And he says, repent again. Let me cleanse the sin out of your life. Come to me. Loving Father in heaven, Lord, we have seen in this story in the Old Testament a call to our hearts, a call not just to come to you once, but a call to keep on that narrow way, to not be distracted by the calls of others who may be calling us to disrespect the authority that you have placed in your church. Lord, help us to be like Moses and Aaron, to be like those who were faithful in Israel, to stay true to you and not to use our influence to call others away from you. And Lord, most of all, may each one of us come home to the love of your grace. No longer to wander in the wilderness of sin, but may we each be found ready when you come to take us home as our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.